0: Thanks for joining us. I am Zach Crum, and this is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. The American Fisheries Society wants to honor amazing people and projects with their annual awards. There are over two dozen awards handed out to individuals and groups at the annual meeting each year, honoring excellence in fisheries science, promotion of diversity, and public outreach, to name a few. There are several awards for students and young professionals too, which often offset the cost of attending the meeting. If you know someone worthy of recognition, head to fisheries.org for more information or search American Fisheries Society's awards. Applications and nomination packets are due by April 1st. Joining me for today's episode are two guests, Dr. Brett Alio and Dr. Tom Stewart. Dr. Alio received his PhD from the University of Chicago and is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Dr. Stewart also received his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago, where he is currently a postdoctoral researcher, and he'll be starting as an assistant professor of biology at Penn State this summer. Dr. Alio and Dr. Stewart are experts on the functional morphology, biomechanics, and evolutionary biology of fish, and I'm excited to chat with them today about their current research on mudskipper blinking. Thank you both for coming on the podcast, and welcome.
1: Thanks for having us, Zach. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, excited to talk. Absolutely, yeah. Happy to have you both on. I'm really excited to learn about an entirely new aspect of fish science today. So, to start us off, what is it that initially interested you both about studying the morphology and and biomechanics of fish?
2: I can jump right in. So, I got interested in fish research as an undergraduate. I was an evolutionary biologist, and at the time, there was a lab that allowed for me to study the feeding systems of cichlids and how they develop. And that was a really interesting problem, trying to combine developmental processes, how you grow from a single egg to an adult, to problems of feeding and ecology of fishes in the wild. Uh, So that's what brought me to grad school where I was working on the evolution and development of fishes generally. And then I kind of got sucked into understanding fins and their diversity. Um, So lately I've been working on the colonization of land by fishes in the early tetrapods, about 360 million years ago. and Brett and I have a number of overlapping research interests that kind of resulted in this project eventually developing.
0: Okay. Brett, how did you first kind of get into studying this aspect of fish?
1: Yeah, totally. So I, I'd always been really interested in understanding things about how and why animals are able to accomplish the, the amazing behavioral feats that, that we see them doing all, all the time. And we think about that even as ourselves and some of the amazing things that we're capable of doing uh, biomechanically and behaviorally. And that's how I originally got interested in animal morphology and and, and movement, for example. But I started to really appreciate it when I came across just how diverse that morphology is in fishes and across fishes and how that related to the evolution of all these different behavioral repertoires and the use of different fins and how morphology mechanics and, and neuroscience kind of all come together to to allow these behaviors to generate so that's kind of how my my interest in animal movement originated and then once I saw how diverse fish were it was it kind of took off from there and it was like whoa this is uh, such an awesome system to, to try to explore those questions in
0: awesome yeah because both of you have worked with other uh, vertebrates as well so not just explicitly fish I know a lot of people we have on the show are like totally geared 100% towards fish but uh, you both have studied some other organisms right
1: yeah. So right now, I, my master's degree, I was studying turtle locomotion with, with Michael Butcher and, and Rick Blob. And now as a postdoc, a lot of the work I actually focus on is in moth flight and the evolution of moth flight as, as it relates to the evolution of different wing sizes, shapes, and movements. But those kind of questions that I'm addressing in moths right now were, we're, we're completely uh, motivated by, by some of the things that I found in, in fishes. So there's, there's actually quite a bit of overlap in the aerodynamics and hydrodynamics between, between those two groups.
0: Gotcha. Awesome. Um, Tom, what about you? Have you worked with other organisms as well as part of your PhD and your, your postdoc?
2: Yeah. So most of my research is oriented towards the question of how did new body parts evolve? And how are there sort of major transitions in body form and ecology of lineages? Uh, So I use fish for that mostly because you can study, for example, how new fins evolved looking at the fossil record. Um, But that work has also led me into studying how hands, like digits as a structure, originated. And those research problems focus on a number of living tetrapod groups, including crocodilians and birds, uh, mammals as well. But the other thing that I've been working on, which is a whole separate conversation, is looking at within mammals, the diversity of mammary glands. So how nipples originated and how that has impacted the radiation of mammals over many, many millions of years, the way that maternal behavior is linked to this anatomical system, which is a really specialized organ just in this one lineage. Uh, So again, fish are kind of the core of everything I do in terms of comparative anatomy and experiments. But... A lot of these problems, as Brett said, you can study in any system if you're interested in movement or anatomy or development. uh, There's a lot of ways to get at it.
0: Yeah, that's really cool being able to approach this sort of research from multiple organisms and tie it all together. You both attended the University of Chicago. So was that where this Mudskipper project sort of first developed? Well, I think
2: if we're going to trace it all the way back, it's probably that Brett and I overlapped in a lab for a few years. It was Melina Hale's lab, which was on the neurophysiology of fishes. And when we were there, both as students, we collaborated on a project that was really fun looking at adipose fin function for the fisheries people. Those are little structures found behind the dorsal fin and things like salmon. And we cut them off a lot thinking that they're not very important for the fish's behavior and locomotion. Um, but Brett and I were collaborating on this study to show that these structures can actually detect flow, that they're highly sensitive, and they may be important for the biology of fishes and, and many more um, examples than we would have thought before. So uh, that worked. Sort of kept us in touch and left us wanting another opportunity to work together, and that's what led to the mudskipper thing. After Brett landed in Georgia, we were talking about possible projects, and it it developed from there. But it wouldn't have taken place if we hadn't been, you know, in the same place at the same time for years before that.
0: Right. Okay, yeah, that's, that's really interesting With as far as the adipose fin research goes. I mean, I've worked in um, tagging trailers, and obviously you're cutting off thousands of adipose fins a day. So, I mean, I guess if you don't mind briefly just sharing what some of your findings were on that, I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize some of Tom's work here as, as we get into this, this this conversation. And what this this historical idea behind the adipose fin was was it? it was this vestigial uh, appendage, for example. But Tom did this really amazing work looking at the the evolution of it and found that adipose fins had independently and repeatedly evolved multiple times. How, how many different times did you find that they, they evolved independently, Tom?
2: Uh, it depends on the model that you use for these reconstructions, but between two and five times, probably. Sometimes it's like a, a single lineage of cyprinids in the you know, upper Himalayas have a structure called the adipose fold, but it has the same anatomical organization as other adipose fins. So repeatedly, minimally twice, but up to potentially five
1: times, I think. So that kind of started to indicate that there was some strong functional significance behind behind these, these fins that had previously been thought of as, as this vestigial appendage. And there were some hypotheses floating around in the literature that suggested, you know, maybe they were being used to, to sense flow. And if you can sense that flow uh, at a more um, anterior position, maybe you could use that information to adjust maybe the way that you, you move your caudal fin during locomotion or potentially even interact with some of those vortices that are, that are getting played off of that, that fin and, and using them to amplify your force production, for example, making you a little bit more efficient. So Tom did this really amazing, beautiful neuroanatomy on the adipose fin in the Corydorus catfish. And he showed some of that work to me and it just showed all these, this huge network of sensors that was innervating this fin. And I was doing a lot of work at that time on recording from the sensory nerves that innervate the pectoral fins of fishes when I was a, a PhD student in Melina Hale's lab. And this kind of fit right into that same theme. So again, you know, Tom commented earlier, right place, right time, right overlap. And we were making, we were doing these recordings pretty regularly in other species in the pectoral fin. And we kind of started playing around with the idea of of testing this, this flow sensing hypothesis in the adipose fin of fishes. And Tom and I worked, I think about a year on even just developing the prep to do that. And Eventually, we got it to work. And I was going to tell a bit of this story later into to a different one of your questions, I think that, that you might be asking us later. But eventually, we got this to work. And we found that these fins are highly sensitive to really incredibly small deformations. Like we were moving this fin just a millimeter in deformation. Um, And you were getting this huge explosion of activity. I think one time we even got a water dropper and we just dropped a single drop of water on the top of the fin as we were recording from that nerve. And again, we saw this big explosion of activity just kind of speaking to how sensitive it is in responding to the fluid flows around that fin as a whole. So it really started supporting this idea and this hypothesis that was created in the literature uh, before we even came across this problem, that these these fins could be acting as these flow sensors. And we certainly found that they were able of being incredibly sensitive sensors on the body of these fishes that it's evolved in repeatedly. So that's kind of an overview of what we found. And it was a really, really exciting project.
0: Yeah. That, that's amazing. I, that's fascinating. I didn't know anything about that. So I have definitely learned something new today. <laughs> um, thanks for sharing uh, sort of that summary. That was really cool. Um, so I guess kind of going back to to mudskippers, right? So um, for for your project on mudskippers, what species are you working with? Are you working across multiple species or is it just one in particular?
2: So the project began with just the observation that these fish are able to retract their eyes in a way that looks just like blinking. Um, I don't remember if it was from, it must've been just videos on YouTube. We were just looking at how animals use their eyes, how they blink, if there's any regular patterns that we can use to understand commonalities in blinking across tetrapods. And then we stumbled across the fact that a bunch of fish actually have membranes that cover their eyes, uh, sharks do it in different contexts. Guitar fish retract their eyes and fully occlude the corneal surface, all kinds of cool examples of fish kind of independently arriving at similar kinematic or functional behaviors. Um, But mudskippers are so striking because they have independently evolved this behavior in the context of terrestriality. And so that's what led us to this problem and to try to understand why they're blinking. It began in the lab, I think, with an Indian mudskipper, but now almost all of our work is done using an African mudskipper because they're larger. But we've also replicated a lot of the descriptions that we do in both cases so that we know that this is not just a phenomena that's happening in one taxon that we have in the lab. This is probably a general feature of the group, um, the ability to retract the eye and then raise this lower lid, which is called the dermal cup, to perform a blinking behavior.
0: Okay, cool. Did you have anything to add to that, Brad? So I don't have anything to add to the the species, but I will add a
1: quick comment about the the origination of this project that that you asked a little bit earlier. And I think another cool thought around this is that Tom and I were, were in different places at this time already. And we were just texting back and forth. And what we actually started doing was talking about blinking more broadly across tetrapods because we were looking for a project that we might be able to interface uh, with at a a zoo, for example. And and what kind of projects can we take advantage of the diversity of species that you can find in a zoo? And we started playing around with this idea of, of how blink rate evolves. And that really led us down this path of seeing just how extraordinarily diverse the blinking behavior was. And it was, I think, through a YouTube video that, that we we sent you I think Tom sent me that a few days later after we started this discussion via text message. And that video kind of led the way to everything that we've done since then. And we've really focused this work in on just mudskippers.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like why do mudskippers blink? What is the purpose behind this behavior?
2: That's precisely the question we're trying to get at in this paper. I think it's easy to look and see an animal on land kind of blinking, just like a frog might do, and think, well, it's probably blinking for all the same reasons that we do. You know, we blink when our eyes get irritated and we have to clear dust out of it. We blink if something's coming about to hit us in the face when you're playing dodgeball and somebody throws something your way, you'll (laughs) close your eyes really quickly. Um, And we also blink to keep our eyes moist and to keep a fluid film um, covering the cornea And so the project tackled a bunch of these different possible functions um, and experiments were designed in the lab to try to get at specifically, do they blink to clean their eyes? Do they blink to wet their eyes? And do they blink as a form of protection to keep objects from scratching or puncturing the eye um, that they might encounter in the environment? So that's that's exactly the questions we were trying to answer. And I mean, Brett can get into the details of those experiments, but it seems as though they're blinking for basically the same reasons that we do. For all the same reasons that tetrapods have this behavior as an adaptive feature of our visual system, mudskippers, too, have evolved those same behavior for those same reasons, basically.
0: Okay, so yeah, I'm curious, Brett, if you don't mind sharing just kind of how this experiment worked and how you tested those uh, factors that Tom just mentioned.
1: Yeah, great question. So I, I first want to shout out the amazing group of undergraduates that, that we had the opportunity to work with in conducting a lot of these, these experiments. And a lot of these experiments were conducted in a vertically integrated project course at the Georgia Institute of Technology, where authentic research experiences are actually integrated directly into the undergraduate curriculum. And this was a multi-semester sustained research experience for these undergraduate students. And that's this really amazing, innovative educational activity, especially from the terms of of reducing barriers for undergraduates to get authentic research experiences. And and it was just this really wicked cool class that we had the, the ability to work with and take this interdisciplinary group of undergraduates that came from Engineering and physics and biology and computer science, and team up to use all of our individual skills uh, that were quite unique across this group to answer some of these questions. So, some of the things that we did were, for example, when we wanted to test the hypothesis of do they blink to what the eye, one of the things that we did was actually build an evaporation chamber. And we did that through a, a biomedical engineer. Was, was one of the people that really led that part. Harrison Fu and, and Manu Shrupathi were, were two of these people that did that quite well. So what they did was they built a chamber and they put two computer fans at the top of it. And then they put a little bit of water at the bottom of that chamber. And we put mudskippers in this chamber for a total of two hours, essentially. And for one of those hours, we had no fans on. It was just a control condition, ambient uh, environmental conditions. And then for the second hour, we put we actually turned those fans on. And we calculated that turning those fans on actually increased the evaporation rate of a thin fluid film by about 20 times. So you would expect under those conditions that blink rate would increase if wetting the eye was one of these functions of this blinking behavior in mudskipper fishes. And that's exactly what we found. In these high evaporation conditions, blink rates significantly increased. And and we found that repeatedly over multiple individuals of mudskippers. And then to test some of these other hypotheses like cleaning, we did another really simple experiment. So what we did was we took a bunch of brine shrimp eggs, which are about 200 microns in diameter, uh, which is approximately the same size of the debris that you're going to find in waterfront uh, areas, for example. And we sprinkled these brine shrimp eggs on top of the mudskipper eye. And then we just waited for the animal to blink. And when we reviewed the film, we found that a single blink was incredibly efficient at cleaning the corneal surface. In a single blink, over 96% of the debris that we put on the eyes of these mudskippers could be cleaned with just one of those blinks. So they're highly efficient at cleaning the eye. And that was really important for these animals to maintain visual acuity, especially because they're jumping in and out of these these really muddy environments, as as the name of the the species kind of suggests, the (laughs) the mud skipper. And then finally, we built a capacitance sensor. And a capacitance sensor is like that that sensor that we use in touch uh, screens or your your iPhone, for example. And we connected that sensor to a, a small LED light bulb. And the LED light bulb would light up anytime this sensor touched a capacitive surface like the skin of a biological animal, for example, or the eye of a mudskipper. So we actually tapped very lightly the upper corneal surface of the mudskipper eye, and we found that this would reliably trigger a blink every single time. But we wanted to really take that a little bit further. So what we did was we started analyzing the temporal dynamics of that. And we found that there was a very, very short lag time between when contact was made and when the blink actually became initiated. And then we found that the duration of the eye closing period was much shorter in mechanically stimulated blinks in comparison to spontaneous blinks. And then we compared those same variables to the corneal reflex and the temporal data that was collected for the corneal reflex in humans. And that's really the only other system that we could find these data for. And we found that these are, are of incredibly similar uh, temporal patterns in both of these groups. And that really suggested that this was the evolution of a novel reflex within the mudskippers because all of our work on a fully aquatic outgroup, the round goby, found no evidence of, of any structural system that would allow eye retraction in that system. So it's very likely that this outgroup had no reflexive behavior. So this would be the evolution of this really novel um, reflex. Tom, what, what would you like to add to that?
2: There's a whole parallel set of projects that were done to characterize the anatomy of these animals, and we're trying to understand the problem of how blinking originated by considering both data sets simultaneously. So, for example, when you look at the muscles of the mudskipper and how, and ask how is it that they're mechanically able to actually perform this behavior, you see that they have the same muscles that a trout would have, you know, the same set of extraocular muscles that attach to the eye to rotate it, to look up, look down, look left, look right. They've just reorganized them in their position and attachment to perform this new retraction behavior. Similarly, we looked at sort of the skin to ask if there's any specific glands that are producing tears. In our own bodies, we have little organs that produce fatty solutions, the high lipid solutions that mix with other components to produce our tear surface on the front of the eye. Uh, But mudskippers don't seem to be doing that. So we were looking at basically both the performative part of the behavior, why in an adaptive context might this be occurring, Um, but also from a structural perspective, sort of looking at the morphology of the animal, how is it that they're able to perform this and how might they have changed relative to their fully aquatic relatives. So so what are the evolutionary transformations required to perform this radically new behavior that allows for them to live on land comfortably, or for most of the, a lot of the day on land?
0: That's really interesting. So that was kind of my next question was that, is this something that's completely unique to mudskippers, or is this something that you think some other species do as well? I mean, obviously, it seems like they're blinking for a lot of the reasons that humans do. So is this something that, a behavior that occurs in other fish?
2: It's something we're still working out right now. There, there are blinking-like behaviors in a lot of, in a lot, in a handful of other fish. So, nictitating membranes as a sort of structure that can cover the eye. It's different from our upper lid and lower lid, but a bunch of animals have a third eyelid called a nictitating membrane that goes across the eye from sort of front to back. Uh, sharks have evolved nictitating membranes, and it's thought that that behavior and that anatomy is to protect the eye when they're um, either about to hit something or they're striking prey. So there are fish blinks that are fully aquatic and for totally different reasons. But we also see a number of behaviors that might be called eye retraction, but seem to be quite similar to blink. So it kind of blurs the boundary between um, what a blink is and the other things that fishes are doing. Pufferfish. There was just a thread on Twitter that was really fun to see of pufferfish are able to fully retract their eye and the conjunctivo, which is like the soft skin around the eye, kind of folds forward and closes it, so it looks like the mudskippers or the like the pufferfish is blinking. Um, I don't think we would typically call that a blink, but again, we we look to these other examples, look for similar kinds of anatomy, behavior to understand what might be intermediary forms between the tetrapod blink, which is just something that happens on land, basically, in our lineage. It evolved probably once when we colonized the terrestrial environment, and the earlier condition in evolution, which would have been not to have this trait. Um, There has to be some kind of gradation or some kind of scenario in which we get from one state to the other. And that's what we're trying to understand, looking at all fish diversity. But again, those comparisons are restricted to the literature. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done trying to figure out why and how this all happens. But I think this is one of the first well, one of the reasons it's exciting is this is one of the first papers to really tackle that. Uh, so it's easier to identify a bunch of problems than it is to resolve anything specifically. But that's sort of what we're hoping to start a conversation about.
0: Right. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I, from what little I know about mudskippers is that they're, they're pretty unique um, in terms of their physical, obviously physical components and behavior as well. What else is unique, I guess, about mudskippers? Brett spent more
2: time with them up front and in person so he'll have opinions I'm sure they're really charismatic animals like I don't know I've had a number of pet fish over my life like I've had a puffer fish that I'm pretty sure recognized me when I came in the room you know, like a pretty intelligent animal that understands the shape of your body through the tank and the relationship with getting fed you know they, they can put these things together fish are pretty bright um, some of them at least and my impression is that month skippers are One of those animals that's way more charismatic and sort of interesting in its behavior than I think people tend to give it credit for. Um, You can train them to come up and eat out of your hand in the tank. They're really quite confident and docile and interesting animals. Uh, But if you're interested in evolution and how fishes left water sort of in our own lineage hundreds of millions of years ago, there's a lot of questions you can ask. One of the things that I'm particularly curious about, this is just a weird mudskipper fact is that they'll spend a ton of time on land. They're fully comfortable and happy to be you know, walking around or crutching around on the terrestrial surface, but periodically they do walk to the water's edge and kind of take a sip. And part of it is to keep the gills moist because it's important for respiration. They're still performing gas exchange, but I suspect that they might get thirsty. You know, you're evaporating a lot of water and you need to consume water in some way too. And the idea that there's a fish walking around that gets thirsty just like we do and has to walk back to the water's edge and take some <laughs> sips is just such a trip. And it's so fun to think about. There's all these little things that you don't, I don't know, we don't appreciate as specialized in our own bodies. that are associated with living on land and living in the, in the air or, <laughs> excuse me, out of the water. But you can see this, this other lineage kind of confronting all of those challenges given its unique ecology. So they're, they're really fun to, to think about and to interact with.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. They are, they are such a wonderful species of fish to have around and, and just get to observe. I mean, I could truly, and I have, spent hours just staring at these fish doing what they do in their tank because they're that, they're that charismatic and extraordinary. And, and yeah, I think that some of the really cool and unique things about them are particularly their invasion of a terrestrial ecosystem and their ability to live out of water for, for such long periods of time. And there's some really interesting work that, that has looked at the locomotion and feeding, respectively, of these by, by people like Sandy Kawano and, and Emily Kane, both of their labs, respectively. So it's, it's a really exciting group to think about. And I'm glad that, that Tom and I are pushing that investigation forward in a, in a different behavior.
0: Awesome. Yeah. From what little I've seen about them, like I said, they're a crazy cool looking fish. And I was going to ask, you know, what else about some of their weird behaviors could be studied, but it seems like Tom kind of hit that. Like, I guess you guys have to do a mudskipper drinking project next.
2: I would love to see that done. I just feel like that's like, that's a whole, I mean, again, Brett's interests and strengths are in relating behavior to the neural underpinnings of, you know, diversity. Um, How does something like feeling thirsty How does that physiology and that system originate? How does that evolve? Uh, We know a little bit about the basis of thirst in tetrapods and sort of the specific nerves and pathways that our bodies use to sense the need for more water. And if I had to guess, mudskippers probably have created their own system for performing all of those things. It's just, it's a lot to think about. Many years of research could be done on these fish.
0: Yeah. So if anyone wants to check out some of this work, is it published yet or is it kind of in, in the process of getting out there?
1: Yeah, we're working on it right now. Thank you for, for giving us a little push to, to hurry that up. No. <laughs> um, but but uh, Tom and I, as well as our collaborators, um, especially the amazing undergraduates that, that helped us through, through a lot of this work um, and led a lot of the experiments that we did here, um, we're working on writing this manuscript up right now, and we're hoping to get it submitted in the next, the next couple months. So expect this out kind of later this spring or, or early summer. But now that I've said that, we all know that, that science takes way longer than we we always expect. So I'll refer you to Tom's email address uh, if <laughs> uh, you're, you're asking questions about the delay and why it's it hasn't been out yet.
0: <laughs> no, I didn't mean to put you in the spot. <laughs> I was just curious, you know, if, obviously it takes so much time and it sounds like a really cool paper. I'm really excited to check it out.
1: The, the only thing I would I would add at a really high level is that I think it's because of Tom and I's different perspectives and different set of expertise within the, the broader discipline of biology that allows us to combine and ask these types of questions that at least the two of us find deeply interesting. And we really play well off of our, our different expertise and ways of thinking and approaching these problems. And it has been so fun and and such an honor to get to to work with him over over the years and continuing that work on this project. So yeah, the the interdisciplinary approaches and integrative biology that he and I really appreciate, I think is one of the reasons that that we've been on the same page on so many of these different projects.
0: Right. Yeah. That that sounds like a really amazing collaboration, um, especially just bringing together people with different skill sets and really amazing things can happen. Well, cool. I'll go ahead and transfer into the final five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. So I'll give you both a chance to answer each of these questions. The first one will be, what is your favorite fish?
1: So I, when I remember you saying that question in email, and I remember being really baffled at what my answer was going to be. And I've tried <laughs> to think about it a little bit over the last uh, week or two. And, and I didn't really come up with a good answer because I was like, I think they're all expecting me to say the mudskipper is my, my favorite <laughs> fish here, considering that's what we're working on right now. But it, uh, for my PhD, I worked on the wrasses, that really extraordinarily diverse group of coral reef fish. And one of the things that I, I really, really love within that group is the slingjaw ras. And I thank Mark Westney, one of my PhD advisors, for sharing the extraordinary behavior of the sling jaw ras and, and just getting to see that mouth extend forward when they're reaching out to grasp their food source is just so extraordinary. And another one of those behaviors I could just sit around and, and watch all day. I also have a pretty fond appreciation for lungfish, and although that's a that's a sarcopterygian, maybe we were thinking just actinops only. Um, but if I could <laughs> extend out to our sarcopterygian cousins, that that's probably where I would uh I would fall in line.
0: <laughs> awesome. What about you, Tom? Yeah, it's really hard to pick just
2: one. I mean, I think I'm not going to, I'm going to name two. My favorite fish who I've gotten to know, his name was Snoop, Snoop Dog. He was a puffer fish who lived with me. He was a great green spotted puffer. So interesting, really fun animals because they're primarily kind of freshwater, but they transition to brackish water. So you can keep them um, in a freshwater setup and slowly kind of change the system as you keep them in, you know, in your tank. They don't need that much space. They're really, really, really interesting. And so I adored that animal. It was a really fun creature to have in your house. But instead of one specific one, I'll also just give a hat tip to the early tetrapod fishy type things. Um, I'm in a paleontology lab right now. I've been studying an animal called Tiktaalik, which is one of the sort of the last finned animals. It is such an interesting fish to think about. It gives you a lot of perspective on some big evolutionary problems and but having the chance to work on that has been really special for my career. So I would put that up there too as a, a favorite fish.
0: Awesome. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about Tiktaalik in my evolutionary biology course. And I was like, that's so crazy that that's kind of one of the early ancestors, right? Of those that moved onto land. All right. So, question two is what is your favorite memory from your career so far?
1: So, the, my favorite memory of my career so far has a lot to do with some of the things that we've, we've already talked about. So, that project on the adipose fin that Tom and I had the opportunity to work on prior to this was definitely one of my, my favorite memories of my career so far. But specific, there was one specific moment that, that I want to point out in that project. And Tom had done all of this amazing neuroanatomy in a species of catfish called Corydorus, which is, you know, maybe two, three inches in total length. In hindsight, you really couldn't have picked a harder fish to try to do electrophysiology on. So Tom and I spent maybe, you know, a couple months just trying to identify the nerve that, that, that innervated the fin. And before we even tried recording from it. And then we just tried so many repeated times because the dissection to get to that fin, that fin nerve took uh, you know, hours on its own.
2: We would spend four hours dissecting this fish that was about two centimeters long to oh, get a God. nerve that was, you know, a fraction of a hair, a the, the fraction of a width of a, a single hair. It was brutal, a brutal dissection.
1: So thinking about what Tom just said, then we would try to take it into a different room and attach an electrode to that nerve so we could start recording the neural activity that was going along that nerve after it responded to some mechanical deformation of the fin, which was, that's at least what we were hoping to do. And we failed at this experiment, I think about 14 or 15 times. And we were right on the verge of kind of giving up because this was at the end of Tom's PhD. And he actually, I think, had already defended his PhD at this point. And we were, we were just about to give up. And, and, and I think Tom uh said you know let's give it one more let's give it one more try and we because we had kind of maybe seen some hints of of activity prior but we'd always end up breaking the nerve or something would go wrong during this experiment and we tried one more time and I remember it was really late at, at, at night on a weekday and we were the only ones on the entire floor of the building at this time and we got this experiment to work the, the, the joy that I had and that Tom had and just getting to share that moment uh, after like all this perseverance through all these troubles was was such an incredible feeling and I'll never forget uh, that feeling of just breaking through and being able to to complete this technical side of, of this experiment and kind of supporting this hypothesis that that we had for so long. So it was just such a special occasion and it made it even more special to do that with a with a close colleague and friend. so. That is definitely my fondest moment in my career so far.
0: That's amazing. That's really cool. Yeah,
2: it's tough. I mean, I don't know if I can point one out so pointedly that it's kind of the process of doing science in a lab in that way. But I think if I had to pick, it would be, you know, some of these days back when we would travel to conferences, a lot of us would get together and give ourselves an extra day in whatever city we were in and go to a botanical garden. This was kind of a tradition that we picked up. And usually after the conference, everybody's exhausted. You know, you've spent a few days prepping your talk, practicing in your hotel room by yourself. You're all stressed out. You finally want to relax. And we would give ourselves about a day to go just explore a city. So we'd be walking around Austin and going to the Botanical Garden. I feel like some of those times with just a bunch of nerds, a bunch of, you know, fish biologists or biomechanists or whatever, looking at weird plants, looking at cactuses and stuff was some of the most fun I've had so far as a scientist. So excited to be able to see everybody in person again get back into that habit before too long.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good one.
1: And, you know, just shout out Dallas Krenzel, Aaron Olson, Kate Criswell. Uh, Those are some of the people I remember being at that botanical garden in Austin, for example. Um, That was a really special, awesome day.
0: Cool. All right. So, third question here for these is what is your dream job and where would it be located? Um, I know you're about to start a new job, Tom. So, maybe you could say that's your dream job, but I don't know. I'll leave that up to you guys. Yeah. I feel
2: politically, I have to say that. A <laughs> no, I mean, it's hard to know what the dream job is, right? We get opportunities and we take them and we hope for the best, but you don't necessarily know that there's a best place for you. It's hard to know before you get there. So, I'm transitioning to a faculty job in the Northeast at Penn State and I'm really excited. I hope it feels good, but we'll see what happens. I mean, there's so many academic spaces that are exciting to be a part of, and so I'm looking forward to seeing what this one is like, and yeah, who knows? I think scientists have a habit sometimes of moving between institutions, so keep an open mind. It could, Hopefully, it feels good, and it's permanent, but you never know.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess from a, a childhood perspective, my, my dream job was always to be, a, be an astronaut like considering that NASA has rejected my application for uh you know yeah Tom and I both we we've both applied multiple times and for some <laughs> reason they don't want us I don't I don't understand it so if anybody from NASA is listening we're we're both interested <laughs> but that aside my dream job is truly just to to get to continue to work with really amazing colleagues and do fun interesting collaborative interdisciplinary and integrative science and potentially and hopefully get the opportunity to mentor some, some really amazing future scientists and help them develop their own skill set and, and see the, the amazing work that they, they get to do in the future. So we're both, I think, kind of living our dream job to some extent right now.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's really impressive. And I'm, I'm really happy for you guys. You seem to be doing really awesome stuff. All right. So if money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on?
2: That's a really hard question. I've been asked that when I was interviewing for graduate school positions and stuff, I think it's a fun thing to think about. Like if there were no limit in your work, what would you try to do? I hope it's not hypocritical to say something that isn't about fish, but I'm going to. <laughs> there was a study in like 1903 by Alexander Graham Bell, the guy who patented the telephone. He took a flock of sheep and because he wanted to improve dairy production, selected his sheep to have from two a total of six nipples. It took about 15 years. He was able to artificially generate a flock of six nippled sheep. And I really want to redo that experiment. We don't understand the genetics of mammary patterning, how numbers regulated. Mammals go from two to 32. It's super important for the way that they care for their young. And we don't have any model in an evolutionary or genetic way for how you get changes in the number of mammary glands. And I think that's such a fun thing to think about. And I don't know if we'll do it with dairy or veterinary scientists, because I think dogs might vary a number in a way that we can get at the genetics of. But that's something that's been on my back burner for years, working on that project. And I'm not probably going to have an immediate opportunity to set up a farm and select the (laughs) sheep. But if I had the money, yeah, we'd put it on the agenda.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. I definitely have never heard of that study. So I'm going to go check that out after this. What about you, Brett?
1: Yeah, you know, this is, I agree with Tom. This is one of the hardest questions that I think you could ever ask somebody. And, and truly, I think if I had all the money in the world, the very first thing I would do is build an institute and ask all of my friends to, to come work at that institute so we could do a bunch of, of really fun stuff together and, and develop more projects like Mudskipper Blinking. But if I think if I could do anything, it would be develop some kind of big virtual reality arena where you can simultaneously allow animals to behave freely within this virtual world and also record uh, simultaneously from the the nervous system to see the relationship between neural control and neural activity and the behaviors that they're producing and all of the kinematics that they're using to navigate these really interesting virtual worlds that, that you could create with some really fun collaborations with computer scientists for example. So that, would, that I think is a futuristic thing, but I don't actually think it's, it's all that far off. And I think in the next couple of decades that some version of that is actually going to be possible. Um, and it kind of already is outside of the part of the free behaving. But the, the future is ripe and the advent of all these new technologies is really opening up a lot of doors. And I'm so excited to see where the field goes in the next couple the next couple decades.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. So last one. So if there's one point or principle that you could have programmed into all of our listeners' heads, what would it be?
2: Another big question. It's a hard one. I'll respond in the context of this project, I suppose. I think as a scientist, if there are scientists or people interested in science listening to this, I have found that it is really challenging to pick your projects. There is so much work to be done that it can be tough to know what the best way is to use your energies and your time, but you have to carve out space or projects if you can, that are just interesting to you that are just fun to think about and fun to do with cool people. Hey, Brett. Um, <laughs> and I feel like it's hard to know how much we can do that sometimes. Cause there's pressures to publish, there's pressures to write a certain type of paper, to get into a certain type of journal But at the end of the day, you just got to follow the things that are really interesting to you. And it's the easiest way, I think, to do fun and good science. Um, So that's what this project to me feels like. And to the extent that we can use this time to encourage people to follow their weird inclinations, I feel like we should.
1: Yeah, I, I'll piggyback off of that a little bit. Um, and I appreciate you calling me cool, Tom. That was that was a nice little tidbit you added there. Um, really broadly, I think that doing fun, creative science with with close colleagues that you really enjoy working with is, is some of the most rewarding times that I've ever had in academia. And I think what I would encourage uh, some listeners is to think outside the box, think uh, creatively and try to break down those barriers between the subdisciplines of biology and between the disciplines of of other fields like computer science and engineering and physics, for example. And as a biologist hanging out in the physics department right now, I've seen firsthand the power of blurring those lines between physics and biology and engineering, for example. And none of the undergraduates that worked on this project, I think, were, were actually biology majors. They were all engineering, physics, or computer science majors. And it was because of their skill sets and getting them interested in this problem of how and why blinking has evolved that allowed us to do so much of this in the time that we did and do this actually in a project-based course. So really taking advantage of the unique skill sets that that your group and your your team has to offer can lead to some really amazing things. And. Of course, working with friends and making sure you have a good time doing it is is going to lead to some awesome things. I think.
0: Nice. Yeah, I think those are both great points. Um, so, lastly, if our listeners would like to get in contact with you guys, what's going to be the best way to do that?
2: People can find me on Twitter. I think my handle is Tom Does Science. That's probably the easiest way. You can also shoot me an email at Stewart at uchicago.edu if you have any more detailed questions.
1: You can also find me on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is bralio br a i e l l o. And you could also shoot me an email to my my Georgia Tech, which is bralio3 at dot edu.
0: Okay, awesome! Thank you both again so much for coming on. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking, and looking forward to read more reading more about your mudskipper blinking project.
2: Thanks for doing this. It's fun to to know that the, there is a fisheries podcast out there. Look forward to digging into it.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This was a lot of fun, and and it it was uh, it was great to to see how that conversation went, and you you really sparked some great conversation. Thank you so much, Zach.
0: Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. If you would like to get a hold of us at the Fisheries Podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Pod, or by email at feedback at the fisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app, or stream it from Spotify or the fisheriespodcast.com. You can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon, or by purchasing Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 165th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, try to follow what you're passionate about, and don't be afraid to reach outside of your discipline to partner on new projects.